Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on the Venture Fuel podcast. I'm your host, Fred Schonenberg, the founder of Venture Fuel. Last week on our episode, we introduced you to the first three finalists of our Visionary of the Year Award. We revisited our inspirational conversations with them about their work and how they're driving transformational change. This week, we are introducing to you the other three finalists for the Visionary of the Year. And just to level set, the Visionaries, Venture Fuel Visionaries, is the Hall of Fame for innovators. They're nominated and voted on by their peers. These are the change agents embracing new opportunities to drive outsized results. From CMOs to the up-and-coming disruptors, these are the leaders that are intent on blazing new paths, discovering inventive solutions, and powering the future. I know you're going to enjoy these highlights from our conversations with them earlier on the podcast, and then we will do a big event in January uh, to celebrate the winner. They'll be joining uh, a very distinct group of past winners, and I can't wait for you to enjoy these words of wisdom. First up is Erin Chin. Erin is Logitech for Creators CMO. She is the leader behind the Creators for BIPOC movement. We have a great conversation talking about the role of creators in shaping culture and why it matters to build long-term brand equity with emotional connections with consumers, as well as tips for how your organization can think strategically and how to build a true community. Please enjoy. I mean, I think having a North Star and having conviction and being able to align the right people that you need to align, figure out, I mean, part of the battle is knowing who the decision makers are and being able to align them and bring them along on your journey, right? I think a lot of the work that I that I've been doing in my entire career has all been very kind of lifestyle driven marketing. And I think, you know, not everybody, especially people who aren't marketers, understand that it's exactly what I was talking about before. The fact that you invest ahead in the equity of your brand so that it will pay off in the long term. But you know, in in product sales, but you you have to be able to dedicate some resources. You have to be able to dedicate some attention. You have to be able to dedicate, you know, to really doing things that feel a little bit uh, more emotional because you know that connection with consumers is purely, largely emotional. I mean, with many of the products and categories that I've worked in, you know, yes, there is some functional benefit to the product sometimes, but you know, at the end of the day, brands are about the connection that you make with consumers and how you make people feel. And I think you really need to think about, about that when you're when you're working within big organizations, especially ones where that isn't the typical way of marketing. And don't give up. You know, there's been many, many times, I think, you know, throughout throughout my career where someone doesn't see the vision or someone doesn't believe, but that's when you, you know, start figuring out how you can how you can use whatever data to your advantage, other experts. Really, you know, make the case 
because it, you know, if you believe in it and it's important and you know it's the right thing to do, you, um, you know, you, you have to work hard to get it. And maybe it, you know, maybe it's a trial. You get an ability to try something and test and test and improve the model. But I think sometimes it seems like it's easier to give up when um, people don't see your vision. But I think just having the fortitude to stick with it can really prove to be um, really uh, successful. Next up is Dominic Venturo. Dominic is the chief digital officer at U.S. Bank. We talk about ambient banking and the potential for universal digital IDs, the future of banking and payments, but also talk about nimble processes to seize on seismic shifts, the importance of patience when moving fast. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Dominic. When you think about the time horizons, I talked a little bit about the sort of the automagical of payments. I've been working on a couple of things for a few years, and sometimes I feel like because they haven't fully materialized that I might be on the wrong track. But one of them is sort of this concept of digital identity and a federated digital identity and the ability to, and we're seeing some progress in that space, but the ability to issue identity documents digitally from the time of birth and then manage them because, you know, we really don't have that except for like one county in Oregon and the United States does that doesn't happen anywhere else. And then the driver's license becomes your identity. But the reality is the driver's license isn't your identity. The birth certificate is. All the driver's license does is create a substitute for the fact that somebody verified your birth certificate, but your actual legal identity comes back to that birth certificate, right? And it's kind of a weird sort of arcane space, but if we could solve it digitally, we could massively improve both access to finance as well as the seamlessness at which we could operate and manage risk. And then we could solve for a whole number of other things. And so I've done quite a bit of some public speaking and the like on this on this topic and a lot of work. And that's one thing. And then the other part of this is that's connected is what I call ambient banking. So you might be familiar with the concept of ambient computing, where you know computers in the background are smart enough to do a lot of the things that they need to be able to do to enable sort of our lives to be easier in an autonomous way. And so things just sort of happen ambiently and. you know, a very simple example, not one I made up, you know, one that I, I read about in a book, but a very simple example would be, for instance, uh, you know, a smart umbrella when you've got it sitting by the door, it glows blue when you have to remember to pick it up on the way out the door. Why is it glowing blue? Because it knows it's going to rain. So you probably have a reminder on your phone that tells you it's going to rain, but you got to look at the thing in order to make the connection to pick up the umbrella, right? So the right. umbrella glowing blue is a great example of like, oh, that means I need to do that. We did a simple example of a color changing light bulb. That if all the light bulb did was change colors, it would tell you you needed to do something with banking. So if it was constantly green, you knew everything was good and happy. But if it turned amber, it meant you needed to go look at your bank account and do something. And if it was red, you needed to do something like today, like pay a bill. Very simple. That's sort of ambient banking where You have the ability to be aware that you need to do something without having to consume the cognitive load, if you will, of the data and then make the decision. And then you make it ultimately super simple to be able to do that. Imagine if that light bulb was red, you could just say, you know, U.S. Bank, why are you red? What do I need to do today? Oh, you need to pay your electric bill. I'll pay that from my checking account. Or it's green because you'd previously to do that if you had enough balances. So this whole concept of ambient banking, I think, is you know, not far from reality. It's technically possible and it requires folks to be really, you know, comfortable and confident 
but I think high potential. Last but not least is Sam Wong. Sam and I have had several conversations this year at conferences as well as on the podcast. She is a principal at BMW's iVenture, basically their corporate venture capital group. We talk about automation and acceleration, how they built that corporate venture capital group into one of the most admired in the world with over 600 million invested across two different funds with 12 exits already. We focus on building the future together as well as her different investments across AI, big data, autonomous driving, industry 4.0, and the role of external innovation for corporations. Please enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Sam. The reality of automating it across the supply chain is that people are going to lose their jobs and livelihoods. So I think the kind of the scariest number I've seen was that since 2000, there have been 5 million manufacturing jobs that were lost and about 4 million of those jobs were due to automation. And so the implications of that, of course, is, well, crap, we are going to have millions of people who don't have a means for employment. Some of them will have to go on unemployment. Some of them will have to go on disability. And we as a society, we should be morally obligated to think about the implications of this shift. You know, I think there's different flavors to how you can solve it. You know, I think Germany has been kind of really good in maintaining, I guess, the like the jobs for their citizenry because they have a lot, they have stronger unions. But I mean, the reality in the US is that we're going to have a lot of displaced workers. I've been mulling over different solutions in my head and our different kind of potentially approaches to solving this issue. I honestly don't see anything other than a form of universal basic income being a solution. And I know that sounds scary, but we already have things like unemployment and we already have things like, you know, disability benefits that are going to a lot of these these workers who are displaced because of these changes in factories being offshore or factories just getting rid of people as their labor force. And and I would say, you know, that we can think about this in terms of the moral implications as, you know, we as a society should provide for everyone because <laughs> then what is there left right. in humanity? But then there's also a second implication, right? If you look back through history, and I and I like to look back at history because I was a former historian, is just that if you look at kind of every single moment in inequality, when there was high levels of inequality, that has always historically led to some revolution, whether that's, you know, you know, actual rebellion and actual complete revolution of government, or, you know, income inequality has also been leveled off by pandemics and also just other forms of violence. I don't think any of us as a society wants to see that. And I would say, again, it's complete hubris to say that throughout the thousands of years that exist across humanity, that there are not ebbs and flows in civilizations and countries, and that, you know, if there's going to be increasing levels of inequality, we're going to see increasing levels of dislocation and demonstrations and people expressing their frustrations with a society and a social structure that is not helping them out. So I, I think, you know, just from a pure 
self-preservation viewpoint, you can view universal income or at least some form of substantial help for you know people who have displaced, who have had who have been displaced as a necessary thing that we should be thinking about. I'm not saying it's you know we should do it right now, but I think it's something that we should continue to have discussions about. And I think you know as automation continues to you know take place and continues to not just go across manufacturing, but other sectors like clerical work, sales, and retail, which are already starting to be automated away. It's going to have to happen sometime soon. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I think it would be so much fun to have all three of them in a room together and just let them ping off of each other about the future and leadership. Also, go back and listen to last week's episode, part one, where we revealed the first three of the six finalists for this award. Uh, The winner will do a big event in January to celebrate them. They'll join an illustrious group of other visionaries of the year. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us to see what's coming up next. And thank you until next time.